HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good afternoon and welcome back to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Joining me today as co-host is my associate producer, Taylor Lanzette. Hi, Taylor. Hey, Jenna. Okay, quick note before we begin. Um, we are doing a pre-record this episode because this weekend, when we normally record, Taylor and I will be going to D.C. to participate in the Women's March on Washington. Woo! Woo-hoo! Um, we're going to D.C. because we believe that women's rights are human rights, and we stand together with demonstrators throughout the country and recognizing that defending the most marginalized among us is defending all of us. Okay. On to the topic at hand. Today, we are very excited to welcome Helena bottomiller Evich back to the show. Helena is a senior food and agriculture reporter for Political Pro, which all of you food policy wonks out there know is an absolutely invaluable resource to keeping us all abreast of the rapidly changing food and ag landscape. Helena is joining us today to discuss the biggest stories from 2016 and what lies ahead for 2017 and beyond in our new political era. Helena, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, Okay, so I want to start our conversation today by taking a look back over the past year. Uh, We had you on the show a year ago um, to kind of forecast what was to come, and and some of the things that we uh, talked about were CNR, soda taxes, the final nutrition facts panel, and the list goes on. Um, Where did we net out on some of these core issues um, that we thought were going to dominate 2016, and what would you say are the biggest 2016 overall developments? Elements that we did see. First of all, I can't believe that it has been a year since yeah. I was last with you. Yeah. 2016 was a crazy blur. Um, 
Wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> well I, think, I think, you know, several of those issues did, uh, you know, did take up a lot of space in 2016. So did taxes. Um, I mean, I think we have five cities now. We have Philadelphia, Chicago, Albany, Oakland, and San Francisco all uh, got soda taxes through in the last year. And, I mean, that's probably what people will look back and see as a tipping point. 2016 was a tipping point. More cities are going to look at that uh, as a way to get revenue, but then also a way to discourage consumption. Uh, probably the one no one saw coming was really the the massive um bipartisan deal on GMO labeling. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people have different feelings about where that ended up, but basically the food industry in a couple of years is going to have to at least disclose whether or not they use genetically engineered ingredients. You know, they might end up using a QR code uh, for that. But if you look at a lot of products, a lot of major food companies started labeling yeah. GMOs in 2016. So... There was a lot of progress on that as far as like kind of putting, and I mean progress by, I don't know that we're going to keep debating that as much because we now have a federal right. solution. The industry is really happy to kind of come to a, a, a conclusion on that and kind of have certainty about where, uh, where things are going. And I think some of the advocates, I know they wanted mandatory on pack, but uh, there are definitely some advocates who view that as a win. So mm -hmm. there was a big compromise on that. Uh, we also had uh, the final, uh, the Obama administration did put out the final nutrition tax panel, uh, which is going to mandate added sugars labeling. They put out voluntary sodium reduction. I mean, there's so many things on nutrition that really that kind of got wrapped up this when, year. When yeah. does the nutrition facts panel go into effect officially? So it goes in, it starts going into effect the summer of 2018. Um, so no time will, soon. <laughs> it takes a long time. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And then it'll be even longer for smaller businesses. Um, and it's possible that that, um, that timeline could get pushed back. There's certainly people who want to push it back. Uh, it's, you know, <laughs> remains to be seen. But that train is sort of moving forward and, and the food industry is committed to updating labels at this point. And then you, I kind of cut you off. You said there are a couple other um, nutrition wins um, in addition to the Nutrition Facts Panel and Sodium. Was there anything else you wanted to add to that list? You know, there are a couple things that really flew under the radar. Um, I think the, the USDA finalizing updated nutrition standards for child care facilities and adult care facilities was one of them. Those... Um, you know, we serve many, many meals to uh, folks in need in child care centers and adult care centers, and they hadn't had their nutrition standards updated in a while. And then also, just in the last couple of months, the Obama administration put out final rules, actually in just the last couple of weeks, on mandating that, like, convenience stores have to serve a greater variety of foods um, if they accept SNAP. And that didn't really get a lot of attention, but... I think that is a piece of the Obama administration's, um, you know, mark going forward. Yeah. And what would you say would be some of those biggest wins and loses for the food movement? Or, or losses in particular yeah. from 2016? Well, yeah, the, yeah, it's kind of tricky because I think probably the folks in the food movement think that there have been a lot of losses, but... They probably were thinking that more before Trump won. You know, it kind of changed the um, the spectrum of 
or I guess their perspective on that. Um, so some people see G- the GMO labeling compromise as a loss, and you know some people saw it as a as a win. Uh, I'm sure many of your listeners are aware that you know Sam Cass, the former uh, head honcho on food policy for the Obama administration, has oh, oh we've talked to him. <laughs> that there's like there were so many wins that people just weren't acknowledging. Yeah, um, I don't I don't know how widely that view is held, but he certainly made that case pretty strongly. I think. One story this year that if you really step back and zoom out from just food policy specifically that's hit me yeah. is the really, really exacerbated urban-rural divide. And I think we saw it um, really illustrated during uh, the election as well and the election results. I mean, Trump got really, really strong support in rural communities, and um, it was the, the, the voting map, the voting um Patterns were so different for, for urban versus rural that I think it's important for everyone to take a step back and sort of ask our, ourselves why that is and, yeah. you know, how some of those um, disconnects can be broken down going both ways. Like there are a lot of urbanites who do not understand in any way rural voters. There are a lot of rural voters who feel they don't understand and disconnected from urban voters. And I think that's one of the themes of 2016, really. What do you think, you know, what is the cause for that divide? And when we talk about the urban-rural divide um, in the context of the election, do you think that that applies to uh, food, like farmers versus um, urban dwellers in particular? I really, yeah, I really think it does. Um, One of the things that really hit home for me when I was covering um, particularly farmers' support for Trump mm-hmm. is how much um, how much there really is a feeling of city slickers or, you know, urban, uh, quote, elites uh, looking down on farmers or looking down on rural voters. And they really um, expressed that to me a lot when I was covering uh, the their support of Trump, and um, I think I think there's just a lot of um, cultural difference. I think that more and more people don't have a connection to rural America. Maybe their family doesn't live there anymore, or they don't have aunts and uncles who live there. You don't spend a lot of time there. It kind of goes both ways, but I just think there's been a um, uh, sort of pulling apart, both culturally and sort of socially, and um, I don't know that that's a good way to go down the road, not just in terms of food, but just in terms of, you know, governing it makes everyone, I think it makes everything a lot more difficult to kind of have unity and a civil conversation and all that. Yeah, I would say, I think that the sort of rural, like urbanites really are actually um, really disconnected from what rural America is actually growing, right? So like corn and wheat and soy, because I think in urban areas, there is this romantic, like romanticization of the vegetable farmers and the growth of farmers markets and CSAs. So in some ways, I think they're connected to, to those farmers or think that they are. Um, but it's really most farmers in this country, you know, there's this like total disconnect. And these, you know, urbanites do not want to gauge with people who are growing wheat and soy and corn and yeah. all these processed foods. Also, most of yeah. the vegetable totally. farmers I, yeah. are on the east and oh, west I, coast. I think that's yeah. so true. I think that's so true. And also, you know, if you go, most of the time when you get, you know, foodie consumers and farmers in the same room, they, they actually agree on a lot of things. Like, there are a lot of farmers out there very worried about corporate control and the, like, consolidation mm-hmm. in some of these industries. 
Um, they're worried about prices. They're worried about making a living. They're worried about sustainability. There, there's a lot of common ground to be found, but I just, I think you're right. Maybe uh, some urban consumers feel more connected to, like, this guy. They see at their farmer's market. They're not thinking about, like, you know, uh, the chicken farmer in Arkansas who's like yeah. really struggling to stay afloat. So, yeah. Okay, so we're a, a few days away from Trump's inauguration since we're pre-recording this episode. Um, and as I know, Morning Ag has been covering um, food and ag and even the environment was like totally left out of the conversation during this election cycle. Why, you know, what, why do you think this was? It's a question I get a lot. I got a lot of that during the election, in some ways, I think food and ag, especially farmers, you know, they're they're almost like a victim of their own success. Like no one is, not no one, but a lot of people are not worried about, um, you know, having access to food at the grocery store, right? Like they, they, yeah. there's certainty around food and maybe you're concerned about affordability, but it's not like something that consumes our life. I think right now people are much more concerned about healthcare and terrorism and, you know, jobs. Yeah. And there's, there's sort of these other issues that are just so much more pressing. Yeah. Um, you know, we just saw a couple mentions, like Trump actually would randomly bring up farmers on the campaign trail. He'd just be like, I love farmers. I love farmers. <laughs> I and he'd be like, what you're doing to you is terrible. You know, what? the EPA, oh, get them off your farms. And, he would, and then he would continue on with his speech. And, you know, I, I didn't hear Hillary Clinton really bring up farmers. But yeah. what's so interesting is, like, she actually did a lot of work on ag as a senator in New York yeah. and really worked to get rural support in upstate New York. But she never talked about it on the campaign trail. And she never really even visited rural places. So she that's sort of didn't. another element. Yeah. yeah I, I would love to have a, a long conversation with her communications people um, at one point. But I would. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, I think that that's, you said something like to a, to a large extent, um, you know, if you can walk into a grocery store and get whatever you want and that is, um, and that's true. Right. And we just actually had a conversation with Mark Bittman and he said the same thing. And, you know, he was talking about how the food system for most people works in the sense that you have access to whatever, you know, you need for, for a lot of people. And so, you know, I, yeah, I think that that could be, um, just hearing a lot of, uh, similarities between what you guys are both saying. Yeah. I, I think, you know, it, this is maybe not a popular belief in the food movement, but, Worrying about food and like the human, you know, how humanely your meat was raised or whether it was raised with antibiotics. I mean, those are luxuries, really. I mean, you have to get to a certain point of having all your needs met to be like, yeah, I want to think about, you know, what kind of food system I'm supporting. And, you know, that's not to say that those things aren't necessarily worth worrying about, but. You know, we just have to remind everyone needs to remind themselves like where those fit on the needs hierarchy, right? So yeah, I think that's important. Yeah, yeah, I think this is a good segue. Can you give us an overview of what a Trump presidency means for the food landscape, per your Foodie in Chief article from earlier this week? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so since we don't have an agriculture secretary, yes. oh, we don't, um, <laughs> and Trump, yeah, and Trump doesn't have. A record at yeah. all on yeah. food and farm policy, it's yeah. so tough to, to predict what he's going to do. So in, in, in the interim, since we don't have those answers, I did do a fun story um, last weekend that is looking at basically what Trump could mean for food at the White House. And 
you know, he's made a lot of, uh, uh, you know, he's really pushed his image as like a fast food aficionado, mm-hmm. tweets pictures of the KFC bucket on the jet and the taco bowl. And he likes his steaks well done, which actually cattlemen totally freak out over. Yeah. If you talk to like anyone, they're like, no, no, he doesn't it's, do that. Ruin really. it. I'm like, yeah, he does. Yeah. He so does. He's, he's a germaphobe also. Which is, he eats his hamburgers well done. Anyway, we kind of walk through the different things. There's a couple, you know, it's possible he could bring in a new chef, um, either a personal chef for the first family or a new executive chef. Which um, you pointed out. What I found interesting. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I, just, I would like a little, um, you know, uh, just adding this in. Um, you had mentioned that both the executive chef and the pastry chef are women. And is that the first time women have held that post? So, yeah, it's the first time that... Women. There are two women um, who it, we have Chef Morrison and Chef Christetta Comerford, and they are the first women to be the executive chefs. We have an executive pastry chef and yeah. then the executive chef of the White House. So those are very prestigious titles. And um, uh, Christetta Comerford has been there a for like time. a decade. Yeah. She, yeah. So she served under Bush and Obama. I mean, I think it's definitely feasible that she will stay there. I don't think they've made a plan. There's been no plan announced. Um, one of the things that was interesting when I was digging into Trump's like dietary preferences was was actually that Ivanka is very into gardening <laughs> and nutrition, huh. and so there are a lot of people who are really hoping, uh, especially in the nutrition and sort of foodie food movement space, they're hoping that Ivanka will will uh, have influence on her dad. So that was kind of an interesting twist that she she actually has a garden in New Jersey, and there are pictures of her kids like harvesting, you know, eggplants yeah. and cucumbers on Instagram. So <sighs> you never know. Ivanka <laughs> might get in that garden herself. So. Part of me wants to, like, love that, you know, like, yay, that could be a beacon of hope. And then part of me is just like, Ugh, I don't yeah. know why that I'm angry. Me. I don't know why that annoys me. It does. I shouldn't be annoyed, though. Um, it should be like a like a optimistic um, thing for, for the future. I mean, I think that there are people who worry are worried about the White House garden. Like, are they just going to bulldoze it down and put concrete in? I mean, that would be really sad. Sad. There's definitely been a lot of chatter about that. And it's sort of, you know, I think people kind of see it as like a, you know, it's a symbol. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, if they were to bulldoze it, it'd be a symbol of things to come. But I I don't know if, if they will touch that garden. I mean... Um, it's it's visible from the South Lawn, and and, and recently um, Michelle Obama expanded it and cemented it in, and added some pathways and an archway, and so yeah. it would kind of be a big to do to remove it. And I don't the know, optics would be I mean, not yeah. great. is not moving into the White House till June at the earliest, or ever. <laughs> I can't really see them deciding to do that, but you never yeah. know. There are yeah. definitely people who are worried about it. We are going to take a quick commercial break to hear a word from our sponsors, but when we get back, we'll be talking with Helena about Trump's cabinet picks and what we can expect from the administration in 2017. Stay tuned. New York State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. 
Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State grown and certified seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State grown and certified seal tells them their food is grown right, right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do, but the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Helena Bottomiller Evich from Politico's Morning Agriculture, a daily briefing on agriculture and food policy. Um, okay, so let's let's turn to some of the more. Um, I want to get a little wonky for a second um, and, and talk about Trump's cabinet picks because I guess this is. I still can't wrap my head around almost any of them. And like, if you could have, I couldn't have picked worse people for the agencies they've been tapped to run, in my opinion. Right. So I'm wondering if you can give us a, a quick breakdown of some of his picks for the agencies that most affect our food system, and where are they in the process, and what is their likelihood of being confirmed. Yeah, so today we're, um, uh, there are hearings for both uh, Tom Price and Scott Pruitt. So Tom Price is um, the nominee for HHS, and Scott Pruitt is the nominee for EPA. And I think Pruitt has probably gotten the most attention because I think he sued EPA like 13 yeah, times. Like many I think, times. I think he's in the process of um, suing them again, too. Like, I feel like there's an yeah, ongoing lawsuit. There, yes, there's litigation <laughs> ongoing. And also... Um, you know, a lot of people see him as basically a, just a symbol of like climate denialism, and yeah. so you know, Ugh. there's there's um, a lot of angst about uh, Pruitt in the environmental community, and I think um, you know, if you look at the ag issues, um, I don't know anyone who thinks that Waters of the U.S. the um, Lotus, yeah. basically the clean water yeah, expansion that the Obama administration tried to do. I don't think anyone really thinks that's going to, you know, survive. Yeah. Like, I don't think that mm-hmm. will still be around. I mean, there's also bipartisan support in weird ways for getting rid of that. So, you know, there's certain things that are just top targets. Like, I just don't, I don't foresee that uh, going forward in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Uh, and then with 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 Price, um, it's he doesn't have like a a uh, long record on food. He doesn't talk about food a lot, but he did vote against uh, the Food Safety Modernization Act, and he voted against the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act. So that kind of <sighs> gives you kind of a flavor of where he would be on some of these issues. But um, I think much more important than price will be who they put in an FDA, and even more than that, who they put under um, in the like deputy commissioner's role or director of SIFSAN, if they move any of those people, who they bring in and what record they have will be really telling. And it's so early to know. I think I think maybe by this spring we'll kind of have a better idea of the direction they're going. That seems a little late, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, when... Yeah, well, I mean, the, we didn't have... Um, uh, Commissioner Hamburg didn't get sworn in until, I think, May. So... Um, maybe we would know a name by like February or March. We might we might know some of the people um, early spring, but I don't know that they'll be in and, uh, very quickly. And the, and, and he, oh, sorry, you. I was going to ask you USDA. Oh, I was going to say USDA. Okay. <laughs> um, this this the ag secretary search like going to kill 
me and my team. I mean, we are. We've been we've been in ag secretary watch mode for like Months. almost seventy days or something. Yeah. I mean, because basically, it's, you know, basically started yeah, before he got elected, yeah. but. And it's the last cabinet post. I mean, he's picked 20 out of 21, and we're just like, just name the last Someone. one. And we yeah. had it on very good authority two weeks ago that it was Sonny Perdue, the former governor of Georgia. And then no announcement came, no announcement came, no announcement came. And then, you know, randomly um, we'll get word that, like, there's a last-minute – and we just did a story yesterday. There's a last-minute push for Abel Maldonado from – former lieutenant governor of California, and, you know, there's a, a, a big constituency that really wants to put a Hispanic and or a woman mm-hmm. in the cabinet, because I think they only have two other women, maybe three. Um, and so there's this last-minute push for adding diversity to the cabinet, and that has created some friction with farm groups who... You know, they're not necessarily, they're not opposed to having a Hispanic or a woman in that position. They just want someone who's very, very plugged into traditional ag. And so unless it's a candidate who, you know, is very close to those issues and is very experienced in those issues or is even preferably a farmer, mm-hmm. there's going to be pushback on who it is. Like even the idea of having a Californian. Um, I was going to say, is she or something that everyone is. Uh, on board with is she, is she a Democrat or a Republican? I'm assuming she's a Democrat. He, but. he he's no, he's okay. a Republican, but he's kind of a moderate Republican. And he, um, it, his name is Abel A B E L. And he, what last night was at Trump the Trump Hotel, like tweeting that he was drinking Trump champagne, and so everyone was like, "Is he celebrating? Did he get the job?" Like, I mean, that's the point we're at. Like, nobody knows. Yeah. Not nobody knows anything, but a lot of people are in the dark, and so they're like reading tea leaves on Twitter. And oh God, it's, yeah, it's, it's it is uh, quite it is, something. The cabinet is strikingly not diverse. I mean, if you look at all their headshots lined up, it is. Um, it's not very. Doesn't yeah. make, doesn't it's make like me so happy. It's like the least diverse cabinet in like fifty years. Even like Bush had a more diverse cabinet. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Remember yeah, those if, good if old they days? they don't appoint a Hispanic, um, it will be the first time, I think, since 1980, 1988 that they don't have a Hispanic in the beginning of the cabinet. Wow. Wow. Um, so to sort of think about forecasting in 2017, um, we'd love to hear what issues we can expect, um, sort of what you think is going to move forward and what you think might be rolled back um, in terms of what the administration is going to focus on. Yeah, it's uh, it's really tough to predict because we don't have, you know, an because he's so unpredictable, <laughs> or an yeah. FDA commissioner. So I'm going to just leave that caveat out there first. Yeah. But um, I tend to be, and this is maybe just because I've been in Washington too long, but I think that there's actually probably more, um, uh, a little bit more common ground than people think. Um, and I say that because, I mean, ag tends to be a space where more of the big issues that get through tend to be bipartisan. I mean, the, you know, the GMO labeling compromise was bipartisan. Uh, every school lunch bill we've had in the past has been bipartisan. So there, there you know, as much as there is a concern among some advocates that, like, everything is going to get wiped out, 
Yeah. I think it's important to remember that it's really hard to do anything in Washington, even undoing things. So it doesn't mean things won't get undone, but you have to have a lot of will to get them undone. So I think there are yeah. things that will be top priorities. I, I think the GYPSA rule is probably dead. I think that'll get rescinded and by that, Congress pretty early. Can you give us a, a reminder? Yeah so, on- so, yeah, so GYPSA is the shorthand for basically... Um, so the, the rule that the Obama administration finally got out, they've been trying to get this out for a long time. Basically, it's a rule that aims to give, especially poultry um, producers, a little bit more power um, to fight back against uh, uh, the processors. So, you know, it makes it easier to sue a company if you can establish, like, a pattern of abuse. It makes it harder for a, ch- a large chicken company to cancel your contract. It's sort of, um, it's an attempt to give a little bit more power back to the producer. So, um, but there's a lot of controversy about the about this, and especially um, the livestock groups really, really hate it. Some of the farm groups, the farmers groups, are actually for it. So there's a divide, but um, I don't anticipate that that those will. Forward. Likely, yeah. WOTUS, I think, like I mentioned, is dead, yeah. probably. Um, I think there's also, it needs to go forward in the courts, but um, as far as it being alive in Congress, I mean, it's just not. Um, I think one thing that will be really interesting to watch is the nutrition space, because while there's definitely, there's definitely a Republican um, desire to relax some of the things like school lunch and maybe walk back some sodium uh, work that FDA's done. Uh, there's also a lot, a huge chunk of the food industry that's actually for um, things like added sugars labeling, like Nestle's for it now, Mars is for it now, uh, yeah. PepsiCo. There's some companies that are actually planning on these changes going forward, and they're reorienting their companies on these changes going forward. So it'll be interesting to see how that debate plays out going forward. I don't know that it will be as much of a, like, U-turn as people think, but you never know. You really never know. And then SNAP. Yeah. um, With the next farm bill kind of debate ramping up, which actually we'll probably start talking about the farm bill pretty pretty soon. I mean, people have already been talking about it, but I think the work on that will start pretty soon. When people start, when um, House Republicans uh, push to kind of take another look at SNAP, which they've been doing for the past two years. Mm -hmm. I think one of the issues to watch is whether or not this uh, conversation about making SNAP more about nutrition, um, there might be some some interesting debates coming up about that. There are some Republicans on the far right and some kind of Democrats on the far left that actually agree on things like, um, you know, looking at whether or not we should have sugary drinks and SNAP. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it is very politically toxic still. I don't know that it would definitely get traction, but I think it's something to watch. Like, there's yeah. a possibility for debate on that. The, the SNAP is, issue is really interesting to me. And, and of course, um, there was a New York Times article from this past weekend that found the number one purchase of SNAP uh, households was soft drinks, which I think presents a really interesting 
um, case, certainly to kind of, like you said, move the needle towards, you know, maybe we should, to more of a nutrition program, we should restrict the purchasing of certain items that are, very, we have a lot of evidence saying that they're unhealthy, yeah. but it could also be an opportunity for Republicans to, I don't know, dismantle SNAP in some way or I, limit its, uh, you know, the budget. I think it's important to note that um, for non-SNAP users, like it was the it's number the two. Yeah, yeah so it's the same. It is the same yeah. and it's not just a... It's basically the same. Yeah, I mean, it's um, actually, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that was a little bit lost in that story is that um, people who are on food stamps and, and people who are not have almost the same shopping cart mm-hmm. overall than, you know, uh there isn't a, a very much difference between um, those two consumers, but um, so we're all still know, drinking a lot of soda. <laughs> y- yeah, yeah, yeah for, definitely. But I mean, but so you know, soda is on the decline. I mean, full calorie um, sugary drinks are on the decline. You know, they're getting uh, what people are drinking more: sports drinks and energy drinks and things like that, teas. Um, but there has actually been a fair amount of. Um, pushback. I don't know if you've seen some of the coverage afterwards. I was seeing some people on Twitter saying that it was like really patronizing article. And um, anytime you talk about limiting food choices, you know, you're going to talk about whether or not that would increase the stigma of using mm-hmm. um, SNAP. And there's a lot of things tied up, to, up into it. And it's also complicated. Like if you're going to uh, do that, do, does that mean you can't buy like Sunny Delight? for your kids or does that mean you can't buy Hawaiian punch I mean where do you draw the line and so you know there there was actually a Republican in the house um Andy Harris from Maryland he's a conservative Republican he has a bill that he's introduced a couple times and he wants to make snap more like WIC yeah which is the program that's targeted towards you know um uh, infants and pregnant women and young children so it would be like you know you could buy milk and produce and peanut butter and they have stricter nutrition formula but yeah yeah, but you couldn't buy um uh you know you couldn't buy sugary drinks or uh potato chips or things like that but i don't um you know i don't know how many co-sponsors he has on that but again it's something to watch and and you guys already mentioned this but anytime you talk about snap uh there's going to be a debate around you know cuts and Mm -hmm. cutting down the cost because we have 43 million Americans on SNAP. I mean, it's a, it's, it's like a big still, program. I think 75% of U.S. state's budget. Yeah. yeah. So even though, you know, as the economy improves, those numbers go down, but I think there's still a very strong interest in getting those numbers down even further. So. Yeah. Especially with this um, new administration, they might have the opportunity to really do that. I mean, before, I think it was always something like Paul Ryan threatened and then, um, you know, didn't, <laughs> Couldn't make yeah. happen, but now um... it's yeah. One, one note on that: it is it is hard to tell what like Trump himself would think about this. Um, I don't know that he really has ever brought up food stamps on the campaign trail. We did ask one of his senior campaign advisors um, this question once, and he was like, "We're for reducing SNAP by giving people jobs." And, you know, I thought that was a really interesting response. I mean, he wasn't like, yeah, we got to get people, you know, we got to cut benefits or, yeah. And, um, you know, I don't know if that's what Trump thinks. I don't know if he's put a lot of thought into this. But, you know, Trump, the thing to remember about him is he has really no 
like ideology or yeah. political. He doesn't even know what um, he thinks. He's not. Yeah, he's not married to like, you know, Paul Ryan's like very in line with like a traditional Republican conservative ideology. And so it's a lot easier to be like, well, these are the things he thinks, you know, this is, these are the things the American Enterprise Institute supports and like those are kind of predictable directions. But, I, you know, with Trump, it's just it's it is really hard to predict. So uh, I think it's that's an important note to yeah to put in. I mean, whether or not you're trying to predict him on, you know, uh, foreign policy or um or, or snap, just, you know, it's the, kind of the same rules. We know applies. nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We know, nothing. We know um, nothing. I would be curious to know how much of his supporters rely on food stamps. I don't know if anyone's ever looked at that. Um, you know, the same way we kind of did the, like the farmer breakdown, we know mm. overwhelmingly farmer supported um, Trump, but um, I, I don't know if that is something, have you seen any reports on that? <clears throat> I know that low income, um, I, th- I believe the low income exit polling, favored Hillary Clinton strongly, but um, I can almost guarantee you in a lot of these um, depressed rural counties that he did very, very well on, you would see um, pretty significant, um, you'd see pretty significant rates of food stamp recipients. So um, that would be interesting to overlay, you know. um, Yeah, to see. There are a lot of people struggling out there in, in, I mean, Mm -hmm. in cities and in rural areas, but particularly in rural areas where uh, they've seen a lot of their opportunity move away. Um, okay, so I want to be cognizant of time, but I, I have I have two more questions if we can get in um, to ask you. And my first is, what is it like to be a journalist in D.C. right now, um, given Trump's adversarial relationship with the press? I have to say, I've never been more thankful to not be like a straight-up political reporter. Yeah. Um, wow. I mean... In some ways, covering policy—I mean, you're not insulated from from the dynamic, the you know, straight up adversarial dynamic. But it does allow you to take a very different approach to covering uh, the incoming administration. That said, it's extremely difficult to to interact with this um, uh, with the president-elect's team. I mean, they have not answered, I think, a single email from, like, anyone asking them a policy question in our newsroom, save for maybe, like, two or three instances. And we have, like, a hundred policy reporters covering the incoming administration. So you can imagine how many inquiries there have been uh, over over the last couple of months. And, you know, they tend to rely more on um, Twitter and sort of the press conference and blitz. Oh, and, that one? You know, that the, one the, press conference? More like uh, the blitz. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they just have a very, very different style uh, of engagement. But, you know, the Obama administration wasn't, uh, at least on the agency level, uh, they didn't engage a whole lot either. I mean, they tried to be very on message and very yeah. Um, well, all Republicans are all. Um, I almost said Republicans. Yeah. No, all all um, administrations, right? It's the press's job to totally, ask tough yeah. questions and, it's and more and more and more on message. Like as the administrations have gone gone through, and yeah. it'll be interesting to see whether or not Trump really lets his uh, departments kind of do their thing, or whether or not they want to control things kind of as much as this administration did. Um, that will be very interesting. I don't know, but but yeah, there's an it's an interesting mood. I think the entire press corps is definitely um, uh, uh, bracing for a very busy, very interesting, very kind of 
uh, crazy year where everyone's going to have to be on their toes and kind of learning this new landscape. Um, To end on a very optimistic note, if you will, after that, um, what are the issues food advocates might have a chance, their best chance at moving forward in 2017 and why? Um, You know, kind of going back to there, I really do think there is more common ground than than people think, but Mm -hmm. one of the just absolutely uh, bipartisan areas right now, I think, is farm to school. Uh, There are tons of lawmakers that see that as a you know, uh, economic development tool for their communities. And there are obviously nutrition advocates who love getting local produce in schools as a way to, like, get kids excited about produce and about where they, their food for, comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, I think all those bills are bipartisan. Um, ag research is probably one where folks can agree, like, getting more funding to uh, invest in ag research, you know, whether it's for fruits or vegetables or... Uh, more drought-resistant varieties. And I think on the local level, um, soda taxes are going to continue to kind of steam ahead, especially as cities look for revenue streams. So Mm -hmm. if you're a city and you've been wanting to do pre-K like they did in Philly, or if you've been wanting to, like, do a new park system or, you know, even build new roads or whatever your issue is, it's going to be – I think soda taxes are going to become one of those things that – cities look at as an option to fund major projects. So um, that's great. Again, whether or not they yeah. come at it from the health angle or not, I think that's going to be something yeah. to watch. It's also just optimistic to hear that there is more common ground than, uh, yeah. than we think because it often feels just the opposite. Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. But. Well, Okay. Um, I mean, you would be the person to know or to, to, you know, to, to, to have that idea. So, um, uh, we're going to have to leave it there today, but Helena, I want to thank you so very much for coming on the show. It was great to have you back. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Okay. With that, we're going to wrap up today. I want to thank our guest, Helena Bottomiller-Evich, for coming on the show. Um, Thank you, of course, to our sponsors for your generous support. Our show is produced with help from Taylor Lanzette, and show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you to our engineer, David Tadashore. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook, and find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liu, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. 
Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.